Today's episode is presented by IBM. IBM's Watson X Governance helps organizations manage their AI responsibly at enterprise scale and prepare for AI regulations coming worldwide. Learn more at ibm.com governance. I just want to thank you all. This is a very special night. And this is the first because the big night is going to be in November when we take back our country and truly we do make our country great again. Thank you very much, everybody. Great honor. Thank you very much. As news of the Iowa caucuses sinks in here at Davos, the big players in politics and business certainly have a lot to ponder in a bumper election year ahead. Welcome to Powerplay, Politico's transatlantic podcast, where we talk to some of the world's most influential people on both sides of the Atlantic. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're at the World Economic Forum. And there are two questions on the minds of delegates shuffling through the snow in their ski wear, AI and Iowa. Today, I'll be getting reaction to events thousands of miles away as Donald Trump celebrates a soar-away victory in the Caucasus, and we take the temperature on the topic that's dominating conversation in the business community and beyond, the impact generative AI is having on all of our livelihoods and profits. I'll be joined by James Manika, Senior Vice President of Technology and Society at Google, who's also advised the White House and many of the world's top companies on the impacts of technological advances. And by Anthony Scaramucci, Chairman of Skybridge Capital and former White House Director of Communications to Donald Trump, no less. Anthony Scaramucci, welcome to Power Play. It's great to be on. You're a well-known figure here among the financiers, the investors who are milling around here. I think most of them want to come to your party, in fact. But one of the things I'm struck by is they seem quite bullish about the way the American economy is going in 2024. The pace of technological innovation seems to them to be something of a friend, and AI is a driving force there. And then you've got other people sitting in rooms here saying, hey, this is the big destroyer of jobs. So where are you on this spectrum? Well, listen, I'm more optimistic about AI. Obviously, I think that it needs checks and balances, and we need to make sure if it's it's going sentient, which it isn't anytime soon, that we have some uh, protective features. But I'm, in general, a great beneficiary of it in my own workplace. And so I use it for emails. I use it for proofreading. I just finished the book, which will come out in uh, April. I asked ChatGBT to give me 12 titles for a book written by Anthony Scaramucci on resilience, and it fired out 12 titles in four seconds, and I picked one of them and sent it to my publisher. So it is a great time-saving device, and it is a great productivity enhancer. I don't believe the argument about the loss of jobs because it's a temporary loss of jobs, and then it's a retooling of jobs, just like we've experienced at every point in technological growth in a society. So we go through these phases, but I'm genuinely very optimistic, and I think AI is here to stay. We're not getting rid of it, despite the people that watch The Matrix and have this apocalyptic view of it. The United States is going to create it, so is the United Kingdom, uh, because we know the Chinese are. And so we're in it together, and, and it's here to stay. A bit of a challenge to that might be the view that it makes things that are going bad worse faster. <laughs> Spitting out your titles for your illustrious new book in a few seconds is 
is a general boon to mankind. <laughs> it's not such a boon if you're looking at something that may be going wrong. I'm thinking of electoral manipulation of deep fakes. You, you know the whole Pandora's box yeah. that people are concerned about. And that regulation doesn't really yet seem to be a kind of settled enough entity to be able to look into that with much confidence. So I only challenge your optimism perhaps on gun, that score. Well, you know, gunpowder helped the terrorists. Uh, explosive C4 was used for terrorism. And we can go through every piece of technology, including the technology known as the U.S. dollar. You know, the dollar is ultimately a piece of technology, is a tool we're using so that we don't have to border with each other, and that's used for money laundering. So we can go through the spectrum of human growth and innovation. We can identify every single thing, and we can say, hey, there's a nefarious feature to this. So there's no disagreement with that, and I agree with you that we're probably behind from a regulatory perspective, but we always are. You know, when the web got invented, and unfortunately, I'm old enough to remember the invention of the web, and I lived in the age before emails, people were very confused, and how are they going to regulate it, and what's it all going to be about, and we eventually got there, and we got comfortable with it. So, so maybe I'm overly optimistic, but I think you're saying something else that I want to touch on, though, which has me a little worried, is that the consensus in Davos is usually wrong. And so if everyone's optimistic about it, I've got to recheck my facts and figures because when I come to Davos, one of the first things I say is, what is everybody thinking? In 07, the economy's going to boom, went into a big recession. 09, the economy's going to fall through the earth, largest stock market boom in U.S. history. Of course, Hillary Clinton was being elected in 2016. That was the consensus here. And Donald Trump was being reelected in 2020. And my last one, which I definitely love, is Bitcoin was a dead asset January of 2023. There were 3,000 delegates here told me that I was stupid. I probably am stupid, but not for Bitcoin. That was the best performing asset last year. So, so I had me, a bet with myself as to how long we'd get through the conversation without you saying Bitcoin. But, but I'm just pointing out that this consensus is generally wrong. So if they're very optimistic, I probably have to rephrase where I'm going. Let's talk about another subject, which has perhaps got the Davos world in a less optimistic frame of mind, and that's the result in Iowa, in the Iowa caucuses, mm -hmm. that big breakthrough there by Donald Trump, who looks now mm -hmm. unstoppably like the Republican candidate, a few perhaps uh, mm -hmm. legal and judicial hurdles along the way. But I don't know if you feel the same. I feel there's something crystallized in the last day or so, that the thought that it could be Trump back in the White House at the end of the year moved from being a sort of Oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. Shrek yeah. vision to, yeah. hey, this could really well, happen. I mean, it might listen, have been. So what's your view on this? Well, listen, I mean, first of all, he won a 51% uh, of the vote. You know, there's lies, there's damn lies, and then there's statistics. And so everybody can interpret that outcome in different ways. But I do think he will be the nominee for the Republican Party unless he is stopped by the judicial process and the legal system. So you tell me, uh, you know, maybe he beats everything. The wheels of justice, of course, turn slowly. Maybe these cases get delayed. So now he can probably withstand all of that. And then even if he does that, I do think the general public, which now 40-plus percent of the general public that's registered, are independents when the whole case is made against him by Joe Biden and his team, I think he loses. And let me give one last yeah. fine point. Well, it's, the so Davos, you're, uh, you're, you would bet heavily on Joe, Joe Biden. Joe winning. Biden, you know, no question. And, and, and let me just put a fine point on this. There's not one person I've met here in the last 48 hours that thinks Joe Biden's winning. And this is classic Davos. Everyone here is Mr. Trump is 
racing to the election. He's going to win handily. As the same people that said Hillary Clinton was going to do it and the same people that said he was winning re-election. So my money's on Biden. Right. You have, in fact, criticised Wall Street for being too nonchalant in the past about the possible return of Donald Trump and said he's a great risk to business in the country. So I'm only turning the screw there a bit because mm-hmm. you sound like you're saying, well, like, actually, I don't think he's going to make it all to the good. But you have been sending out warnings. So is there but a side of you it. that is No, no I don't think concerned. he's going to make it, but he may make it. I've been wrong about I've been humbled by life. I've been humbled by markets. I've been wrong about too many. You don't have enough time on this podcast to tell you how many times I've been wrong about things. But if he does make it, he is a threat to the institutions of America. And you have to remember something about America. It's a very flat, decentralized governmental system. And one of the hallmarks of America, which has led to a flying amount of capital flowing into the country is our legal system. It's very predictable. Our property rights are sacrosanct. And people know they can do commerce in America with great judicial predictability. Mr. Trump says he wants to be a dictator for a day. Take him at his word. Mr. Trump says he wants to hire people in the Department of Justice to persecute his political opponents. Take him at his word. Mr. Trump says that he's going to have arbitrary and capricious standards in his Department of Justice. And so, you know, these guys, they don't remember their history of the 1930s, but this sort of behavior works in the beginning. You get more efficient economy, more efficient government, and it's an unmitigated disaster in the end because once you lose the predictability of the laws— uh, you stop the flow of capital, and you hurt all the nation's businesses. Slight irony here that you're a former, albeit brief, head of communications for. Well, remember, for, I worked from for, for a year. I was and only you worked. There. You worked. From I was before. only in the White House for eleven days, or as Prime Minister Trust, she was there for four point one Scaramucci's. But I was there for one Scaramucci, or 954,000 seconds. Sometimes I tell my therapist that because it makes me feel better. But but my point is you're now a sort of anti-communications for Donald Trump. You have said you'll do everything to stop him returning. Are you prepared to put your money where your mouth is and start fundraising to stop Donald Trump? So I want to, I'm going to take a wait-and-see approach to the nominations are settled. I am a lifelong Republican. The Republican Party looks like it's dying and it's now become the Trumplican Party. But if the Republican Party dies off and it's Mr. Trump versus Mr. Biden, I will raise money for Mr. Biden, the president. I will provide media advocacy and support for him. And I will do exactly what I did last time, which is I will go into rural markets and I will go into swing states. Despite my privilege today, I did grow up in a blue-collar neighborhood and I identify with these people and I will explain to them the threat. Could you see yourself making common cause there on the campaign trail with John Kerry, for instance, who's quitting his role in the administration to join the the Biden campaign? I am a patriot first and a partisan second. This is really going to be a litigation about the American system and the democracy and the institutions that have made America what it is. And a result of which I will team up with John Kerry, or I guess, uh, what did Winston Churchill say? If the devil says something mean about Adolf Hitler, he'll say something kind about the devil, or I'm paraphrasing. The point is, my adversaries in the Democratic Party, I will coexist with because there's a greater threat, and that is Donald Trump. I think you're going to become functionally a Democrat by what you say. Well, How I'm does that, a, that make I'm, you feel I'm, as a I'm, lifelong I Republican? I'm, I think I'm functionally now an independent. Actually, I, I'm registered still as a Republican because I'm a, a loyalist and I believe that I have to stay in the party, but I'm a fringe now in the party. Uh, I'm a party represented by uh, Mitt Romney and Liz Cheney and Adam Kissinger. Uh, that's no longer the, uh, Chris Christie. 
that's no longer the plurality of the party. These were people that would have been in the majority as short as 10 years ago. Uh, but I don't want to leave the party yet because, uh, you know, it could be a, uh, you know, the greater great man theory or the bad man theory of history. Trump's deletion from the party eventually, granted, he could run again, but he can only four years from now, he's no longer a political viable candidate. Maybe there'll be an opportunity to rebuild and regrow the party. Thanks very much for stopping by. Always great to be on. It's terrific to be with you. As we've been reflecting, artificial intelligence is the dominant theme here at this gathering and its applications sit at the intersection of both finance and politics with huge implications for both. I'll be joined after the break by James Manika, Senior Vice President of Technology and Society at Google. A message from IBM. AI has the power to automate, but if it's using untrusted data... Can you trust the results? Your business doesn't just need AI, it needs the right trusted AI for your business. Introducing Watson X, a platform designed to multiply output by tailoring AI to your needs. When you Watson X your business, you can train, tune, and deploy AI, all with your trusted data. Let's create trusted AI for business with Watson X. Learn more at ibm.com slash watsonx. IBM. Let's create. James Manika, welcome to PowerPlay. Well, thank you for having me. We're in the midst of a lot of talk about AI and the advances in AI. And what we wanted to delve into a bit more is the impact on the mere humans who will use it or sometimes find themselves featuring in it. You've spent your career in robotics, in computer science. You've advised chief executives and founders of many leading tech companies around the world. What do you make of this extraordinary pace of change and advances in AI? And in terms of that positive to negative or worried about balance that perhaps is in a lot of minds here at Davos and beyond? One of the things that's been extraordinary is that um, the pace of development in AI actually has been accelerated for quite some time. We've actually been living with AI for quite a few decades now. It's just that it burst onto the scene in a very visible way about a year ago. So what's really exciting about it is the fact that if I think about what it can do for people and for society, which was your question, I think the impact on health and the life sciences and improving our health and well-being is going to be enormous. I think the opportunity to address our pressing societal challenges, addressing issues of climate change, addressing issues of sustainability, those are going to be huge. Already, we're doing much better predictions, for example, in flood forecasting from extreme climate. We're already doing much better predictions in more than a dozen countries in wildfire boundaries. Those are things that we're starting to do with AI that we couldn't do before. The fact that in biology, we now understand all the proteins down to science, all 200 million of them, thanks to AI. I think that's extraordinary. The fact that last year alone, we used AI to discover 2.2 new materials that were not known before. And these are going to help us design better battery technology, better strong, strong materials. So all of these kinds of advances in science and addressing pressing societal challenges, I think are going to be fundamentally important uh, for humanity. Having said that, though, we should think about and very, think very responsibly about some of the challenges, complexities and risks that come with AI. So 
choose your risks and complexities, I'll just ask you to select some because there, there is such a lot there to unpack. But I guess what people worry about most is that sense of a lack of control or hard to control sense about artificial intelligence, particularly in the generative model. I think that's right. I think the way to th the way at least I think about it and our teams think about this is on the one hand, there are these kind of important performance limitations of these systems. This is when they give you biased outputs or uh, harmful toxic outputs or they make stuff up, hallucinations. So you've got those kinds of complexity and risks that we have to address. Then you've got challenges that have to do with misuse of this technology, uh, misapplication, misuse. Uh, this is an important election year everywhere in the world. So you don't, you'd worry about potential misuse in terms of deep fakes and misinformation. Then you've got some very important things we should think about that have to do with how it's going to impact jobs, labor markets, the economy. That's quite a lot already. Let's talk about, as we're looking into election year, Iowa caucus in the US has focused minds on that election, but there are many others. It's a bit of a bumper year for elections. And I think you've observed that, to quote you, AI has the potential to worsen societal challenges with unfair bias and pose new challenges as it becomes more advanced and new uses emerge. And I suppose a lot of people might be saying, looking at the attempted meddling in elections, whether it is going back to the attempts to establish democracy in Ukraine or the US or many other countries who have seen at least attempts to subvert the democratic process, this sounds like a particular nightmare if you layer AI on top of it. And it's exactly why we have to take it very seriously and approach it very responsibly. So one of the things we're spending an enormous amount of time on is thinking about how do we help validate content how do we do watermarking so that we can detect, for example, synthetically generated images or audio? These are areas where we're doing phenomenal research. In fact, last year, one of the things we introduced was a watermarking technology called SynthID, so that if somebody creates a, a tempered or manufactured image, uh, we can spot it. So these are some of the things we need to do. Similarly, we have to make sure that credible information whose provenance we understand is actually what's being posted online. And when it isn't credible, you take it down. How do you see this regulatory tussle working out? We have efforts by the US to come up with a regulatory model. We have the EU, which has had a quite a strict view of how it wanted to approach regulating technological progress. We've got Rishi Sunak in the UK, who'd like to come into the, the ring as a convening power. Who's doing it best? We're making progress. I mean, last year, 2023, was a very important year on this front. We saw the White House executive order, which built on voluntary commitments to address some of these safety questions. The UK summit was actually very productive. I'm currently co-chairing the UN high-level body on AI, trying to understand how the world uh, and others are thinking about this. And I think in all of that, what's been extraordinarily encouraging is everybody's focused on it. Everybody's focused on safety. We're starting to get standards established. We're starting to have these mechanisms to test, assess, evaluate models. So I think we've made a lot of progress. This is the year I'm hoping we make even more progress. The key thing, though, on regulation, which we, I think is very important, it goes back to where we started this conversation. In my mind, regulation should do two things. It should enable the extraordinarily beneficial things that we can get from AI, 
uh, improving society, improving science, uh, benefiting the economy should enable all of that. And it should also help us address and mitigate the harms and the risks. It should do both things. Of course, the other potential cost is in jobs, isn't it? And the impact on the job market, generative AI sector projected to grow to $1.3 trillion over the next eight years or so. How concerned are you that the workforce will shrink globally faster than the benefits will come on stream or that people can be redirected to be fruitfully employed, but also the the social implications of feeling that they're worthwhile through their labour when AI, Lord knows, is, you know, we will have a sort of bad joke about it. It'll be coming for me next, won't it? You know, that sort of feeling. Well, I think the job question is an important one. Most of the research that's been done, including the research that I've done, suggests that we're going to see three things happen. We're going to see some jobs that will probably decline, occupations that will decline, some jobs that will actually grow, jobs gained, and some many more jobs that will change. In fact, one of the early evidence we're seeing, there's a f- wonderful study from MIT and from Stanford that has actually shown that in the labor markets, the assistive potential of these technologies are actually extraordinary. In fact, in this example, they're looking at call center workers. They were able to see that, in fact, the low-skilled ones benefited the most. And we should think about the substitutive elements, which is why reskilling and retraining are going to be fundamentally important. But this is not just a one-way trip. There'll be jobs lost, jobs gained, and a lot more jobs changed. And that's something you're seeing in Google as well, isn't it? Google's cutting hundreds of jobs in its voice assistant business hardware teams that are producing Pixel, Nest, Fitbit products as it accelerates in generative AI. So it's disrupting your own company as well. Do you think that companies like yours will end up actually being smaller in person power and stronger in generative AI? I think what, what often gets confused is when businesses continue to optimize and improve their strategies and their priorities, that then gets conflated with the investments companies are making in AI. The two are not go hand in hand. We've been evolving how we do our strategies, the markets we participate in, the technologies that we're developing. Keep in mind that AI itself is actually leading to economic growth. It's powering productivity, which will expand economies and grow jobs. So I think... But you have just lost jobs because you have other things coming on stream that are driven by AI. That's not quite right. Uh, so I think you're connecting optimizations that we're doing in our business and our, in our workforce with AI. Those are not the same things. I don't think companies letting employees go started with AI. I think that's been going on for hundreds of years. But companies so think- will let people go, won't they? Because they will have certain things that they don't need humans to do anymore that AI will do better. And I suppose what we're looking for is what is this kind of balance that we hope to find across all our companies and also how governments then see the workforce that is being disrupted. So the balance we're striking is what all the research is telling us. There'll be jobs lost, jobs gained, and jobs changed. And that's the balance that we need to work our way through. Every single Research study that I know of, MIT, McKinsey Global Institute, Stanford, suggests that over the next several decades, the net will actually be more jobs rather than less. Now, as we work through those transitions, there's going to be reskilling that we're going to need to think through. Uh, how do we complement and redesign work and workflows? But the net of it is we're going to have more jobs 
than we have today. And that's what all the research suggests. I haven't seen a single study uh, looking at the next decade or so that suggests that we're going to lose jobs. But there will be labor force adjustments, mostly to do with skills, that we're going to have to work our way through. James, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. In tomorrow's episode, I'll be talking to Lord Cameron, David Cameron as was, Britain's Foreign Secretary, who since returning to frontline politics three months ago, has contended with two wars and a fresh crisis engulfing the Red Sea. Do be sure to follow Powerplay wherever you're listening to get all of our episodes when they publish each morning. The producer here in Davos is Christina Gonzalez, our executive producer for audio, and Peter Snowden is our senior producer back in London. I'm Anne McElvoy. See you tomorrow with another edition of Power Play. A message from IBM. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, or generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing Watson X Governance, helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with Watson X Governance. Learn more at ibm.com governance.